all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fawson. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or by going to veteransradio.net where we're on the web 24-7. You can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday, so you can get a new story, a new interview, something you didn't know before by going to veteransradio.net. And before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at LegalHelpForVeterans.com. We want to welcome back to Veterans Radio today, Dwight Mears. Dwight is a retired Army major. Uh, He was commissioned after going to West Point. He, uh, along the way, uh, as part of this package, he picked up his Ph.D. from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, a J.D. from Lewis and Clark uh, uh, Law School. He has a master's in library science and, and is a reference librarian at Portland State University. But we have him on because he's one of the few uh, researchers, historians, writers out there on uh, medals, uh, upgrades, revocations, and and we're talking in particular today about the latest attempt uh, to look at the Medal of Honors that were handed out after Wounded Knee, and there is a once again a bill being promoted called Remove the Stain Act, and why don't we start there, uh, Dwight? Uh, welcome back, and tell us what uh, this version of Remove the Stain Act is about. Yeah, so thanks for having me on, Jim. Um, I I would just preface my remarks by saying that because I've published widely on medals of honor, medals in general, and specifically the legal merits of medal revocation. Uh, that was, you know, this issue was very primed to get me sucked into it. And, and of course it did because, <laughs> because when, when Senator Warren released the media package for remove the stain a couple of years ago, it cited me very prominently. And actually they scanned a chapter of my book uh, and uploaded it to the, the Warren website. It's still there if you're interested. And so, so it led me to contact them and to give them some advice about you know how this bill could be retooled to get it past committee um and so as, as a result i've i've discussed this with many of the stakeholders um so far my ideas have not been implemented uh, but that you know that's the prerogative of 
the legislators in question. Well, be, um, be, yeah, before we get into the, those details, let's just set up that this goes back to uh, Wounded Knee during the Indian Wars, and that there's kind of two views of this. Some call it uh, the Battle at Wounded Knee. Others call it the Massacre at Wounded Knee. As you might imagine, uh, the uh, Indians, uh, the Native Americans, uh, view this as a stain on their history uh, because so many women and children will, were killed in this uh, uh, action. And therefore, there's been a long effort by the Lakota Indians in particular to sort of have these medals revoked I'm, I can't really tell if it was 23 medals or 27 medals or 30 medals that were awarded um, after the action, but but that's kind of the context of it uh, that that this is about medals of honor, and I guess we have to premise it that these are the these are not modern medals of honor. The, this was a different time and place when these were awarded. So why don't you set that up a little bit to where. It explains why why you find yourself talking to all the stakeholders and talking to senators and and representatives about, hey, if you're going to yeah, look at this, so, what's the what's the right so way to look at it? Basically, in a nutshell, the the Medal of Honor has not been a static decoration throughout its history. Um, they they continued using the name when it became modern in 1918 for the Army and the Navy eventually. Um, had those criteria forced upon them in statute in 1963. But if you go be before those dates in either service, the medal was not modern in statute or regulation. Um, and to the extent that that materially changes the eligibility criteria for that award, it is not the same decoration. And so if you're going to judge adjudication of that medal prior to those dates in 1890, you know, comes well before 1918, you have to use the criteria that were in force at the time. I mean, to do otherwise is demonstrably inequitable, meaning you're, you're applying present day statute and regulation ex post facto as before it, it existed. And that's, um, I mean, you can do that, um, but as a matter of equity, it's, it's frowned upon in jurisprudence and, you know, administratively, it, it just isn't done. And so, so that is one of the issues that I had with remove the stain. And, and the good news is that that can actually be fixed because there was a regulation um, for the Medal of Honor. It turns out that it was published the year prior to Wounded Knee. I mean, that was the first Army regulation. The, the, um, the Army Medal of Honor lacked a regulation from 1862 until 1889. And so it was awarded for virtually anything. Um, and it was not tied to gallantry in action, you know, above and beyond the call of duty at risk of life, you know, within a statute of limitations and with two eyewitnesses to satisfy the burden of proof. I mean, that that's the modern criteria, but that did not exist in law until 1918. And in regulation, it came a little bit earlier. Most of that language was formulated just after the turn of the 20th century, which was also after Wounded Knee. And so as a result, you can't judge 
those earlier metals by modern criteria. That That is a fundamental misunderstanding of what the metal was at that time. Yes, they did grandfather those awards and on a recipient from Wounded Knee was still alive in, you know, 1945. You know, technically they had a Medal of Honor that the War Department um, still considered valid. But um, but as a matter of, of fact and law, those medals were fundamentally different. And in many ways, the modern criteria were a direct reaction to the lack of standards that existed at that time. I mean, the the War Department, medal recipients, and, and ultimately a huge coalition of people ultimately regretted the the complete policy vacuum that existed at that time. That's why 911 medals were eventually revoked in 1917, most for enlistment extensions that did not even occur in combat and may not have actually occurred at all. Well, that's the funny part. Um, because, back, back in that point, because we're no criteria, oh, you're going to list? I'm going to give you the, you'll get the Medal of Honor. Uh, the, uh, some outfit in Maine got a whole trunk load of these things uh, because they stuck right, around yeah, and listed. The, I mean, it's, the 27th Maine received 864 Medals of Honor, and there was also a New Jersey regiment that received some. And that that's simply a product of the fact that the War Department had few ways to incentivize soldiers staying beyond their enlistment. They had no stop loss at that time. And so um, they used all the tools at their disposal. During the Gettysburg campaign, they were they were afraid that the, that the units would walk off of their post because at that time, enlistments were contractual. They could not keep the soldiers, you know, a day past the contractual period when that enlistment expired. And so they had to, they had to use all the tools they had and they only had one medal. The medal of honor was it. And it was not required to be awarded for gallantry. Um, And so the vast majority of these medals that were awarded in the civil war, you know, would obviously not uh, meet today's modern criteria. That doesn't mean that there wasn't gallantry um, or other equivalent actions at that time. It just means that it encompassed every award that we award today, whether it's, you know, achievement, valor, service, all those things were rolled up in the early Medal of Honor. Well, and let, let's turn now to, so, so these awards are given out in, uh, in the uh, 1890s, um, and it's been for, I, I think, you know, I'm going to say decades that the Lakota Nation has attempted to have, uh, whether it be the Department of Defense or Congress, look at and revoke some or all of these Medals and and you've identified some of the problems, which is uh, by which standards, by standards back then, by today's standard, by political standards, by cultural standards. What what what? How would you make this determination? And that's kind of where these remove the stain bills that get introduced every couple of years kind of fall down. Is there hasn't been a great process? Talk to us about the process that you see in the bills as proposed, but but this is where your uh, article, law review article that's to be published in the American Indian Law Review comes into play and, and proposes something new. 
Yeah. So, so the, the larger context is that metal revocation is a modern phenomena um, when accomplished outside of statute. And that one case that I already referenced in 1917, where 911 medals were revoked was per statute. So in 1916, the army received a directive from Congress, you know, enacted in law that they would convene this board and, you know, revoke any medals that did not conform with criteria. Um, and, uh, that's never happened again. And notably we aren't operating under the same, um, environment that existed a hundred years ago, you know, executive authority has grown considerably, um, by 1961, the army decided that they could revoke medals on their own. Um, earlier in the century, that was not legally permissible. The judge advocate general of the army had ruled that administrative uh, res judicata or administrative finality prevented the army from reopening these cases, except in very clear cases of fraud or, or material error, um, you know, that was objectively tainting the award. And so if you subjectively disagreed with the adjudication of an award, you could not reopen it without an act of Congress because it was seen as Congress's exclusive prerogative. Um, and a little bit of that still operates today. And so Congress sets the criteria for this award. And that's why when you see Medal of Honor upgrades outside of you know existing statutes of limitation are often authorized in every annual defense bill, and they don't direct the secretary of the army or the secretary of defense to award the medal. They authorize it and they waive the statute of limitations. And that's the proper separation of powers at work because Congress leaves these decisions to the executive discretion. And, and so they set the criteria, but they don't make the, the ultimate award decision. And that's one of the flaws with this bill is that it directs revocation and so it creates a separation of powers conflict. Um, and so that's a problem. Um, several other problems, if you look at the text of the original bill, um, there are different permutations of it out there. The version that was originally introduced had a finding section that kind of has a list of, you know, basically resolved facts. Um, and that ended up when the bill was later incorporated in the, into the several defense bills uh, and then removed in conference, uh, that section was absent. But, you know, it, it, just because it doesn't really have any operative force, I believe. Um, but going through that section kind of highlights some of the disconnect here. Um, and I'd like to say that I don't have an ideological disagreement with the sponsors of this legislation. I mean, the underlying premise here is that murder or negligent homicide should not result in commendation. And that's, that's not a very controversial thing to say. I mean, the question is, are we using an equitable mechanism to judge that? Is there a process to evaluate whether or not misconduct occurred? And if your perspective is that everything associated with wounded knee is tainted by massacre, then potentially you don't need to look at the details. But when you, when you have a very clear and close look at each individual case, problems start to emerge in applying a blanket presumption of impropriety. And um, 
One of those, for example, is that medals of honor weren't the only medals that eventually flowed from wounded knee. And that's because even though the medal of honor was the only medal at that time, the army had long understood that they had in in hand. And so when other medals were authorized during world war one, they, they allowed for a time soldiers who had been commended, but not awarded medals could petition for them retroactively and convert either mentions in orders or certificates of merit, which were just a piece of paper and not an actual medal at that time into other awards. And as a result, at least six of the soldiers who were at wounded knee, who were recommended for something, but not the medal of honor ended up receiving what later became the distinguished service cross, which is the second highest gallantry medal. And at least one of them also received what later became a silver star um, because he petitioned for it retroactively for having had a commendation. And so you have to look beyond simply medals of honor and you have to actually look and see if the soldiers actually earned them there because the legislation itself misidentifies the number of medals of honor awarded for wounded knee. Okay, I was going to ask you that because it, uh, that number in the in the literature kind of moves three or four uh, num- each way. What what is is there a correct number to it? So I, I've looked at them in excruciating detail. Part of the problem is that the army actually transcribed the awards incorrectly in lists that postdated wounded knee, and so. When they originally awarded the medal, it was based on, you know, recommendations and things that are archival now, and you can look at them, and they would come out with a general order announcing the award, and then they would publish it in a out in later years, and at various times, the Army has also published, like, an anthology. Uh, I think they did one in 1945 or 46 that basically covered every Medal of Honor that had not been revoked uh, by that time. And so, uh, and so if you compare those, you can kind of figure out how some of these misunderstandings emerged. The awards that the army included later erroneously said wounded knee, but were actually for the action that occurred the next day, white clay, clay Creek. And one was the opposite. So one actually said white clay, clay Creek, but should have been wounded knee. And so they actually transposed two of the awards. Um, If you pull the general order, those are generally dispositive. They usually were not erroneous there. It's because the army was scooping up the awards and listing them in lists later that they apparently transcribed the awards incorrectly. And so it, it depends on where you look them up. But what, what's clearly superseding all that is, you know, if you actually pull the original records from the National Archives, which are in the, you know, the, the period personnel files of those soldiers, you really, um, you know, where that recommendation so, originated. So what, what is Dwight Muir's number here for the Medal of Honors issued pro- properly for Wounded Knee? Uh, but there were others um, issued for the, for the campaign, which I think came to either 29 or 30, and then there's these other lesser awards that were also for gallantry, 
that should properly be part of any analysis of impropriety because it makes no sense to only revoke medals of honor when there were other awards that would that would you know in the words right. of the yeah. of the coalition that drafted this bill it would leave a stain because it would simply be on other awards and not the medal of honor so your concern with the bill as proposed is this, it's sort of a broad revocation rather than an individual uh, awardee uh, evaluation one at a time. Is that a, on a broad scale the concern? Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a fundamental lack of process to, um, to screen for, um, for malfeasance that should, uh, malfeasance or impropriety is, in my view, the strongest case to revoke a medal there are so others now, so though, now well, hang, hang on because, because hang on because we've got a time frame here and i want to get you into it and that sure. is dwight we get it, so let's say we're going to do it individual by individual which is really what you're proposing in, in your uh law review article um who does the review right uh, this is where the next problem in this has to get worked out before you can make forward progress. So give us your thinking there. Well, first of all, it shouldn't be a politician. Um, a uh, amen. Amen. <laughs> and it, it should not be the Senate or the House or, or the legislature generally directing it. Uh, like I said earlier, separation of powers dictates that they set the criteria. And and there is there is an argument that the criteria were violated because however sparse the regulations and law were at that time, they did require distinguished conduct in action for both the Medal of Honor and the Certificate of Merit that eventually became convertible to the Distinguished Service Cross. And those, those facts allow you to to reweigh the evidence under the period criteria because it is not particularly controversial to say that if somebody was guilty of negligent homicide or murder, then their conduct clearly was not distinguished <laughs> by any measure of that term. And so, and there were clear rules in force since 1863, published in General Orders 100, that expressly prohibited killing non-combatants who were unarmed if not required by military necessity. And so if they were killing people unnecessarily, and there's a strong argument here that some people were, not necessarily all, then those actions were tainted by that misconduct. And that's not a particularly difficult judgment to make. And so to go to your question of who should make the decision, not Congress, um, ultimately it would have to be an executive decision, but that doesn't mean that the executive makes it in a vacuum. Um, many awards have been tainted throughout history by discrimination. And since the 1990s, there has been a clear precedent in three or four cases where DOD and, and often more specifically the Army, um, it started with the Army Secretary back in the 90s, 
they had had no African-Americans at that time awarded the Medal of Honor for World War II or World War I. And so for World War II, they asked, they, they commissioned an external historical study to review those awards and consider upgrading them. Uh, and a friend of mine um, who was a professor at the Air Force Academy actually led that review. Um, and it resulted in a number of awards being upgraded. Um, and it it's helpful to farm a review like that out to scholars for a number of reasons. Uh, number one, DOD doesn't always have the expertise to, to dig into this, um, and they don't always have the, the money. I mean, in the case of the Army, the primary historical body um, is the Center for Military History. And for a number of reasons, the Center of Military History is presently barred from issuing any substantive recommendation on Medals of Honor or any military awards because of a blow-up that happened um, some years ago when Medals of Honor were being reviewed and it was perceived that they had overstepped uh, their authority. And so they now operate under a directive um, that they cannot do anything more than just factually verify uh, submissions uh, by petitioners. But, but as you and say, so there, there is this precedent of having in different formats, not, not just the one, the, the initial one with the Army, to re historically review this by a panel of experts um, who then pass uh, their review on to DOD. And it's ultimately, as you say, it's an executive decision to make. I assume that means it's ultimately for DOD to act on a recommendation. But you're suggesting, I believe, that we you start this process uh, not as a blanket, everybody loses everything they got, but as an individual review of every medal and every action during Moudini by a historic a panel of historical experts. Is that is that where you come out on this? Yes, that's what I have proposed, and that's because I'm I've researched and in one case participated in some of these past reviews. There's there's still one ongoing right now for World War One veterans that may have been tainted by discrimination. I was peripherally part of that panel. It, it passed in the uh, 2020 defense bill. And so DOD will be considering those awards at some, in so, at some later date. Probably most of them will be Army uh, medal upgrades. Uh, and it occurred to me in thinking about it that using scholars to recommend medal upgrades is not that different than using them for metal downgrades. Uh, it's just, you know, potentially more controversial. But, um, and I would mean, you, this would issue... you envision, uh, Dwight Mears, would you envision that this expert panel not only gets to, uh, you know, review historical documents and deeply as you have, uh, but maybe also takes testimony? Because this is a. This is largely advanced by Lakota Nation because of how they feel it impacts their community. But at the same time, there's a whole community and, and family members who have these, you know, passed down from great-great-granddaddy who feel strongly that it would be a stain to their family reputation to have it revoked. So how do you, how do you weigh those competing emotional interests? And is that something in your model that the expert uh, – panel of historians has to take into account. Yeah, well, I think 
I think any panel that reviews this, in, 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 as well as the government that would review it afterward, and that would be in the form of the uh, the Secretary of the Army's uh, decora- uh, Senior Army Decoration Board, and then ultimately that would pass up to DOD, um, and then to the President. And so there would be a number of eyes on this other than the scholars. But yes, I, I think that a panel would have to be inclusive about considering evidence. Um, and and the composition of a panel would also be important. Ideally, it would include some natives. Um, but I do think it's important. Uh, my, idea, my idea is predicated on the panel being scholarly uh, to, to try and remove as much bias as possible. And the ultimate uh, conclusion that I had after I reviewed the literature, because I am not an expert on Wounded Knee per se, or at least I wasn't prior to last year. Uh, <laughs> I've read a lot about it now, but you know, I'm a I'm a general uh, American historian um, slash librarian, and I I've researched a lot about medal awards, um, and my dissertation was on wo- World War II and a case study. But you know, I'm not i have not studied extensively uh, the american west or uh, indian wars specifically and so so i think it's important to have um different perspectives on a panel like that but when i surveyed the historiography of wounded knee it occurred to me after 20 or 30 books that there isn't really a substantive disagreement among historians about wounded knee that it was a tragedy and that the army definitely exacerbated what happened there. Um, many authors don't weigh in on the medals specifically, or if they do, you know, they do it without, you know, the, the context that I bring to this because they're, they're not aware of exactly what governed at that time, um, et cetera. But among scholars, there really isn't a disagreement about wounded knee. Um, you know, they don't generally call it, you know, a successful battle. It's not, um, there is a consensus that it was a massacre and that an egregious um, overuse of force occurred there. And so that that makes a scholarly review relatively uncontroversial, at least with the scholars. Um, and so my idea was that, you know, to revoke a medal, the panel would simply have to come to a consensus on a given revocation. And that would allow them to err on the side of declining to revoke if there's, you know, a doubt uh, about re- reaching the the evidentiary standard that we adopt. Well, it's 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 and fascinating I, that 133 years later, this issue is still being revisited, and uh, there's as much passion on one side as the other side on this. Uh, so when uh, Dwight Mears, uh, PhD, reached out to me and said. I've got a law review article you might want to read. It's a little dense, but we could revisit the issue of remove the stain and the wounded knee massacre and what do we do with these uh, uh, metal revocations. I really like the idea that you you had, which is this historical expert panel of historians and, and doing it. Not in a broad sweep, everybody's medal goes, but on a but on a case by case basis. So, Dwight, I appreciate the time that you've been able to give us today. Uh, it'll be sure. fascinating to see how this continues to develop 
Uh, it's been around for a long time. I don't know it's going to get resolved anytime soon. So I'm sure we'll be, be checking in again to see how it's how it's developing and, and after your article comes out, how it's received. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. I'm just trying to get the idea out there because this is not the sort of thing that you can resolve unilaterally. It has to be part of a coalition. It's going to be, you know, a process to get legislators and, you know, petitioners in this case, uh, the native coalition behind this uh, to potentially adopt this. And and so far I have not uh, been able to do that. But my hope is that this will provide not just a way forward here, but a precedent for other cases, because that's, that's what's operating in the background and why I think there's a lot of department resistance from the military. Number one, they weren't really consulted. And number two, if this were to go forward and they were just directed to, to revoke medals, it would open the door for other executives to do the same. Um, and if there's no process to evaluate that, um, and the regulations, which are relatively modern, po- all of them post-1974, don't really address what to do in a case like this. Um, further, there's almost no statutory backing for revocation. Um, and so there, there's a lot of cleanup that could be done here to, to make for a principled pathway to achieve revocation. And ultimately, I think all the parties involved agree that murder is reprehensible and has never been something that the United States Army has condoned. Um, killing no, but- non-combatant women and children is, I mean, has never been something that the United States Army has directed. At this time, they expressly prohibited that. And so that's um, that's potentially, I, I mean, but a lot of people don't know that. And so- Well, and, and you, have, you, look- you have this, uh, everybody will agree with that as a general proposition. But, but then you'll get into, let's take Afghanistan, let's take Vietnam, where women and children were often engaged in battle. Unless you have a principal approach, you're right, what's going to happen is somebody's going to say, well, I no longer like any of the medals given out in uh, Afghanistan. And I think that also, you know, unless you have a principled approach on this, you really are on a slippery slope of... of uh, does revocation just happen every 130 years because our our views, uh, the cultural views, have changed? I agree. I agree in part. the um, The difference in what you're saying is is the difference between juice and bellow and juice ad bellum, meaning the conduct in war and the decision to go to war. And it's not it's not an individual service member's prerogative to uh, refuse to go to war. That that is a decision of state, and so. Uh, but it is very much the prerogative of the individual soldier to decide whether or not an order given to them is unlawful, um, if it if it patently is. <laughs> and so, if if your method of engaging the enemy or anyone with violence is impermissible by regulation or law, then then you're you should stand up and say, "I'm not doing that. This is prohibited." You know, uh, like. Hugh Thompson did at, um, at, uh, at, at the Milaya massacre, for example, um, he, he stood between us soldiers who were killing civilians and, and said, you know, stop. And he put his own life at risk and he eventually received the soldier's medal for that. Um, if I recall correctly. And that's, um, 
So ideally a medal would never be revoked on the grounds that the conflict itself was arguably unlawful because that's, that's not something you should hold against a soldier. You very much can hold against a soldier, their own individual conduct. And that's, um, that's what yeah, I, I totally agree. If there's no process to evaluate that, then revocation potentially becomes arbitrary. And the best case that I can throw at here is that remove the stain, if it had passed, would have definitely revoked at least one medal arbitrarily. One of the other uh, medal recipients who was at Wounded Knee was cited for rescuing native noncombatants. And so that, that seemingly cuts against the narrative that every one of the um, Medal of Honor recipients committed atrocities. And yet several of the several of the recipients went on record admitting to killing noncombatants and using impermissible justifications to to explain and rationalize why they had to do that. They just said, well, people were still firing at us, so we continued firing, you know, a breech-loaded cannon against them. Um, and that's not that's not a permissible justification for killing civilians at that point if military necessity doesn't require that action. And by the end of Wounded Knee, there's a, a, a widespread consensus that there was an overuse of force. And But there were different soldiers and they weren't all operating under orders. And so it comes down to individual agency. You know, did individual soldiers commit misconduct or not? That, Some that, of the soldiers who eventually received... That fundamentally is the key, isn't it? That individual review to find out it, it, to the best of, of our modern ability what that individual soldier did. Yes, and, and certainly there are other ways that that could be achieved, you know, without, you know, I don't have to be consulted. You know, a panel of external scholars is not an absolute prerequisite. But in many ways, that ensures that whatever the military does with this is generally grounded in scholarship because the military has its own scholars, but not necessarily the niche expertise that would be required here. And so even if they were directed to do a study, you know, they could do that as a follow on study, but they would inherit this huge amount of information that, that scholars would have already poured over. And that would, that would be an excellent start uh, to that discussion because ultimately I don't think that many military officials or policymakers condone murder. They would love to get wounded knee off the records and, and remove metals in cases that is are warranted, but they think about the spillover effects. And so they're concerned what happens when the next case comes up, when somebody tries to piggyback on this, or, or let's say, let's say that the presidency changes parties what happens when the next president just directs that the wounded knee medals are reinstated and so if you don't have a process in place to keep these decisions final um it can get messy very quickly and that's um that's why i'm trying to inject some uh some of my expertise into this well, uh, to to accomplish the goal of the native coalition but also to balance the equities 
to make certain that these revocations are not arbitrary and capricious, uh, if that makes sense. It does. Dwight Mears, thanks for spending extra time with us today on Veterans Radio to, to give our listeners your thoughts on how to maybe move this process forward. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me. And I want to thank everybody for listening to Veterans Radio today. I am Jim Fossone. It's been a pleasure to be your host. I'm a veterans disability lawyer at Legal Help for Veterans, and you can reach us at 800-693-4800 or legalhelpforveterans.com on the web. You can follow Veterans Radio on Facebook and listen to its podcasts and Internet radio shows by going to veteransradio.net. And until next time, you are dismissed. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. We again want to thank our national sponsors, the National Veterans Business Development Council, nvbdc.org, VA Ann Arbor Health Care System, the Vietnam Veterans of America, Charles S. Kettles Chapter, Ann Arbor, Michigan. VFW Graf O'Hara Post 423 in Ann Arbor. And the American Legion Press Corn Post 46, also in Ann Arbor. We appreciate all your support. You can go to veteransradio.net, click on the sponsor level, and continue to support keeping Veterans Radio on the air. And until next time. You are dismissed.